Welcome to uh, week three of our Kingdom Living series here at the Vineyard. Uh, Josh kicked us off introducing the series, talking about, um, you know, what we're going to be talking about for, for seven weeks here. These aspects of everyday life, our relationships, leadership, rest, health, all those things. Uh, and it's going to be fantastic. And he talked a little bit about dualism and how it can sneak in and steal from our, our outlook on some of those things. So I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to his first message if you didn't get the opportunity to. Uh, and last week, we had John and Kim talking to us about relationships and some, some of those relationship buster items that will steal from our relationships and they'll reduce our effectiveness in relationships. So go back and listen to that one if you didn't get the opportunity to. This week, uh, we're going to be talking about leadership and influence. And you were supposed to be hearing from John today. And what I want to point out, John, if you're listening on Facebook Live, plug your ears so that... Uh, this doesn't inflate your ego. John's an awesome leader. John's an awesome leader because what happened this week, uh, the reason that I'm up here, is John and Kim had some potential COVID exposure. And so, you know, we haven't had contact with them, and they're well. They feel fine. They're doing great. But what happened was we stopped and we took time as a staff to ask the Holy Spirit, hey, what should we do this week? Because you know, they feel fine. I mean, it, it, you know, what do we do? We needed direction. And so we stopped, and John listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit and heeded the voice of the Holy Spirit telling him, I'm going to bless you if you stay home. That's the kind of leadership that I want to follow for the rest of my life. That's so important. When we have leaders who will listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, quickly heed his advice and, and do what he's asking them to do, when sometimes it runs counter to what we would prefer, right? How awesome is that? Come on. So, so this week, I'm going to talk about leadership, and I'm, I've pulled some points in from John's notes, but it's going to be fantastic. I'm so excited to talk to you. So uh, in, in, you know, true fashion of most of my messages, what I'm going to do is I'm going to recommend a couple books to you before we start. So the first book is a book uh, by a man named Thomas Merton. Who in here has heard of Merton? And so Thomas Merton wrote this book called New Seeds of Contemplation. And New Seeds of Contemplation completely transformed my inner life uh, the first time I read it. When I read this book, it changed the way I thought about my relationship with God, and it changed the way that I thought about my relationships with people. So if you're a reader, read New Seeds of Contemplation by Thomas Merton. The second one is called Heroic Leadership by a guy named Chris Lowney. Chris Lowney was a Jesuit monk for, I think, like two decades and just kind of out of nowhere, he felt God calling him into the business sector. And so Chris Lowney left the Jesuits. He left a, a life of monasticism and entered in and worked for a company called J.P. Morgan Chase, if you've ever heard of them. And so what he did was he brought the four pillars of Jesuit leadership to J.P. Morgan Chase and actually radically transformed that, that corporate business um, it, it kind of in the wake of financial fallout in 2008. And so it's, it's a really, really fascinating book about leadership. Great, great leadership keys in there. Highly recommend that you read that book, and I'll refer to it throughout the message today. So leadership is never, it, it's intended to be a never-ending process uh, of growth and development. So when we stop growing, we stop living. When we stop growing, we stop living. 
And I want to challenge you with this thought. If you found yourself looking at this Kingdom Living series and thinking like, I've heard this before, this is kind of boring, I feel like I don't really want to talk about this stuff again, you might be alive but not living. Influence requires a few things of us. Uh, it requires ownership and responsibility. Ownership and responsibility. And that starts with our inner life and it flows out of us. We can't muster up ownership and responsibility inside of ourselves. It has to be something that we cultivate over uh, long periods of time with long faithfulness in the same direction so that it will begin to flow out of us in our leadership and influence. And when I talk about leadership and influence, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is you are constantly leading people with your actions. You're constantly leading people with your actions. I'm not referring to a job title, and I'm not referring to leading a ministry or leading a business. I'm talking about leading your kids. I'm talking about leading people in public when they see your conduct. I'm talking about leading your distant family members who see the way that you live your life and they get little glimpses into it every once in a while and it can radically transform them when they see you walking in the influence that Jesus has put on you. I, I've said this many times. I think we have a church full of leaders here. And so this is a very appropriate message for the people that I'm talking to in this room and on the stream, your leaders. A few years ago, I was sitting in a class at Miami in a big lecture hall, and I wasn't paying any attention to what was going on in the class. And I was actually thinking about church growth because I was simultaneously taking a class on church growth and Vineyard Institute while I was a student at Miami. And I was sitting there, and I was asking Jesus, what do I need to do to expand my leadership and influence? Because that's the way we think, right? How, how can I expand my leadership and influence? And the response that I got from the Holy Spirit was initially shocking. Um, he started to expose some things in my inner life that I was not aware of, some heart issues, some issues with the way that I postured myself toward people, and some issues with the way that I postured myself toward the church at large. And after I had kind of made note of some of those things, I felt the Spirit of Jesus inside of me say, until you can lead yourself in these things, I'm not going to have you leading anyone else. And I was like, whoa. That idea that that Jesus sees the way you lead yourself as connected to how you lead others, uh, it had just never occurred to me. I had never thought about it that way. And so that's kind of how I want to frame our conversation today. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about that for a little bit. So Holy Spirit, we just invite more of your presence this morning. God, we need you. We need your leadership. We need your influence. We want to do this the way you would have us do this. God, show us. Unlock things in our hearts this morning as I talk, unlock things in my heart this morning as I talk that would reveal how you would have us influence the people around you. How, how would you would have us influence the city of Oxford, our families, our churches in this city. God, we need your influence in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first thing I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about those four pillars of leadership that the Jesuits have identified because I think they've got a lot of, I think they're onto a really good thing. They're onto a really good thing, okay? So when I say Jesuit, if that makes you like squirm a little bit, if you've got any anti-Catholic bias, I think I've said this before in this church, uh, get over it, okay? Uh, because they're awesome and I love them. So the first key to leadership that has been identified by the Jesuits is what they call self-awareness. So I want to talk about leading yourself in self-awareness first. 
This is, uh, in my opinion, this is about understanding your strengths and your weaknesses and your values and your worldviews, right? It's, uh, it's, it's about knowing who you are, knowing your authority, knowing where you're going, and being secure about that on the inside. Uh, I heard Dave Workman say it like this a few weeks ago, and I liked this. If you're leading and you look behind you and no one is following, you're just taking a walk. If you're leading and you look behind you and no one's following, you're just taking a walk. And what does that indicate? What that indicates to me is that there's a problem with the inner life. There's a problem with the way that I'm leading myself that is preventing others from following me. So our actions have to line up with our identity. Leaders must know fully who we are and where we're going. So I want to start in the Gospel of John in the 13th chapter when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. So we're going to go deeper in this in the groups this week, but we're going to start there. That's going to be our jumping off point for this conversation about influence. So let me read the first six verses to you. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now I want to pause for a second on what I just read because a lot of times we'll, we'll read over that and we'll say, okay, let's get to the foot washing because that's the part where, you know, Jesus washes Judas' feet and Judas betrayed him and like, you know, that's, that's what's in our minds. But I want to pause on those first few verses. Consider those. We should yearn for the kind of clarity about our strengths and our weaknesses and our values and our worldviews that John describes Jesus had in that moment. Think about the statements that he just made. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world uh, to the Father, having loved his own. He loved them to the end. Uh, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. This is somebody who knows exactly who they are and exactly where they're going. That's what's being described here. Jesus is at like peak self-awareness, right? Before this happens. He is at peak self-awareness. He knows exactly who he is and exactly where he's going and why. Jesus knew that, that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, and he knew exactly what that meant. That brutal suffering at the hand of empire and religion unto the redemption of all of humankind was what was waiting at the end. And did he seem panicked about that? Did he seem panicked about that? Not even slightly. Not even slightly. Self-awareness is what allows us to take a look inside and examine our own inner life before we examine the outer lives of others. That's why I don't correct any of your politics. <laughs> we can't expand our influence unless we're working on ourselves. We can't expand our influence unless we're working on ourselves. Thomas Merton says it this way, we are not at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. What he's saying is the key to having peace with others in our relationships around us, what we talked about last week, and the key to having peace with ourselves, the key to self-awareness, is having peace with God. 
It's doing the hard, often boring work of soul care and entering into that place and, and seeing what God has for us. And so I want to kind of continue to unpack that. Socrates says it this way, the unexamined life is not worth living. There he is, Socrates. I know it's Socrates, but I love Bill and Ted. Obviously, we are not as self-aware as Jesus. We're not as self-aware as Jesus. We have not arrived, and very few of us will ever reach a self-awareness level that's even close to Jesus. But he still asks us to try when he speaks of removing the plank from our own eye before examining the speck in our neighbor's. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the inner life. He's talking about soul care. Refreshing and deepening knowledge of yourself in partnership with the Holy Spirit is ongoing. And it's the first key to leadership. The second pillar that the Jesuits identified that I absolutely love is love. So I want to return to these verses that I read to you. The thing that was remarkable to John in this retelling of the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, is that Jesus had loved his own who were in the world and loved them to the end. There's a reason that we call John the apostle of love, and there's a reason that he calls this out, and it's because it was at the very center. It it lived at the innermost center of Jesus' leadership, of his heart for leadership, was the way he loved people. And I love that that's something that John saw it fit to call out. That having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's so good. We have to engage other people with a positive, loving attitude that's rooted in truth. That is fundamentally the beginning of leadership. Love has got to be the highest quality of our lives because our lives proceed from love himself. And if it's not, We've missed it. If that's not our goal, if that's not the thing that we are looking to, we've missed it. The foundation of influence is authentic relationships. That's why that's our tagline for our core value, a culture of honor, right? That's why we're after a culture of honor here. We want authentic relationships, and we want people to feel like they're in a community, in love, in this place. That's where we've got to start. We have to be able to trust the people that we're around. Has your trust ever been broken by a leader? Have you ever put trust in a leader and that trust was broken? I have. And and it it shattered me. It was such a difficult thing to cope with. Do you know why that's the thing that takes people out so fast? Having our trust broken? Because that's, that's the closest thing to the inner life. That's what we need from people who lead us is a love that's genuine. That's what we need. And so what we have to do is pursue that for ourselves. We have to pursue being those kinds of people where you know people can put our trust in us and we're not going to break that trust. We're not going to break that bond of love that is formed between us. It's so important. Leaders are meant to humbly sacrifice in service of others in the way of Jesus. So let's keep reading in John 13. So uh, after that beginning part about love and stuff, it says, Jesus laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus, I love how humble John's description of everything that he does with, with Jesus is. It's a joke. But uh, that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is, to, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now pay attention to this. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Ooh, that's scary. Jesus said to him, what, are you going to do? what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give some money to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. That was, a long, that was a long passage, but let me talk to you about some of my thoughts about what's happened here, because there's some really interesting stuff that goes on. Uh, in a clear sign of servant leadership and in a spirit of humility, Jesus begins to wash the feet of his disciples, right? We see that happen. And I want you to keep in mind, they're all wearing sandals, and they all travel on foot. And so this isn't the foot washing that you saw at your friend's wedding, where they had like an ornate pitcher full of, uh, full of water and then a stark white towel, and their feet were already clean and manicured, and they pretended to wash each other's feet. Okay, this is, this is like, these guys have some dingy feet, right? And Jesus is actually washing their feet. He's not pretending to wash their feet. And Peter tries to resist the foot washing, Right? Peter's like, no, don't, you know, you can't wash my feet. I should be washing your feet, right? And he thinks that that's humble. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then in typical Peter fashion, he like gets himself in a dither and he swings dramatically, you know, to the other side. And he's like, no, Jesus, wash me all over. And Jesus is like, no, Peter, just your feet. And then after this, after this, Peter denies Jesus. Right After this story, they, they go out from this place and you know, the, the soldiers come to take Jesus away and Peter denies Jesus. But in the long run, Peter remains under Jesus' leadership and he makes some mistakes, but he's eventually restored and he ends up being a disciple of Jesus with dynamic impact. Dynamic impact. 
unlike Peter, Judas leaves and sells Jesus out, and much is made of the fact that Jesus still washes Judas' feet, right? We talk about that all the time. Oh, Jesus, you know how amazing Jesus is? He still washed Judas' feet. Okay, we've, we've been there. We've covered that. But what I want you to do, I want to draw your focus to a different aspect of this. When I read this passage this week, something different stood out to me. When you look at the passage, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that Judas is about to betray him. It's pretty hard to miss, right? I mean, he tells John, you know, he's like, the one that I give this morsel of bread, and then he gives it to Judas in front of everybody. So everybody should know, right, that like, okay, Judas is the one that's going to betray Jesus. And, and he essentially comes right out at the end and tells Judas, okay, Judas, get on with it. Like, go ahead, go, you know, do what you got to do. And the other disciples don't get it. Did you notice that they missed it? It says that uh, they thought that he was going out to like buy some food or to give some money to the poor or something. When Jesus tells him, okay, go betray me, it's time. And, you know, we can come to some hyper-spiritual conclusion about what's happening here. And I'm not denying some, you know, supernatural cause for their lack of understanding. I'm not denying that. But what I want to propose is, what if Jesus was simply postured toward Judas in so much love that the disciples just didn't understand what just happened? What if, what if Jesus was so radically postured toward Judas in love in that moment that they totally missed it? And he said, do, do what you have to do quickly. And it was so empty of passive aggression and fear and self-preservation that the disciples didn't even have a framework for what Jesus was saying because they had never seen anyone react to betrayal the way Jesus just did. It didn't even register that he was being betrayed. What if that's the case? There is no remarkable difference whatsoever in the way Jesus treats these two disciples, not just in his actions, but in the way that he speaks to them. You know, he's not in, in the facial expressions that he's making behind Judas' back. They really didn't get it. They really did not get that he was saying, okay, Judas, go out, betray me now. Remember that. His actions were full of dignity and integrity toward both of them the entire time. That's the love of Jesus on display. When Jesus talks about enemy love, that's enemy love. That his words, his actions were, were so devoid of anger of, of pain, of hurt, of betrayal, that the people around him didn't even understand that that person was getting ready to betray him. That's the love of Jesus. The third pillar of leadership that we need to talk about is ingenuity. That's not a word that we use a lot in church. We don't talk a lot about ingenuity at church. But we have to understand how to confidently innovate and adapt to embrace a changing world. A synonym for ingenuity that's particularly relevant to today might be adaptability. Think about it in those terms. The church at large really lacks adaptability in 2020. I mean, if you look, it's just, you know, people are aggravated, people are, are all flustered, and they don't know what to think, and they don't know what to do, and they don't know where to look, and adaptability is like low on, on the skills inventory. Kingdom leaders aren't supposed to be complaining about circumstances they have no control over. And they don't pretend to have control over circumstances that they don't control. And leadership doesn't say, you know, we need person A or person B in leadership for God's purposes to be accomplished. 
Or if person A wins the election or if party B is in power, God's plans are thwarted. That's not the way kingdom leaders think. They don't say, if we can't have church in the building, God can't heal people. That's not the way kingdom leaders think. And they don't say, if Jesus isn't here, how could we ever accomplish this impossible task of his ministry? Right? Which is where the disciples find themselves several, several verses later. So Jesus is crucified, he's buried, and the disciples, we find them in John 20, 19 to 23. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So I want to point something out. The disciples are in this room. They're locked in this room and they're full of fear. That's what we're told here. Ingenuity as a leadership quality didn't come on the disciples until the Holy Spirit did. Do you realize that? I would not look at the actions of the disciples when they were walking with Jesus or shortly after Jesus was killed and describe them as ingenious. They're not. They're not. They react just like I would, right? But when we fast forward to Pentecost, all of a sudden ingenuity starts coming out of the disciples like you never would have expected. All at once you see these great leaders speaking in tongues and healing people and starting ministry schools and, and going and doing this stuff as they went. Shout out to As You Go. Um, Paul preached in Athens and quoted Greek scholars and philosophers and poets and musicians. And, and these guys started uh, getting some ingenuity inside of them regarding how they approached the gospel, right? They were no longer saying, oh, well, because Jesus isn't with us, we can't do it, right? They started to understand what it meant to use tools that they never would have dreamed of because the Holy Spirit was empowering them to do it. So I want to just share a few accounts of ingenuity that result from the church after that. The Crusades are, are a scourge on Christianity, and they're something that we should be deeply sorrowful about in retrospect. And if you disagree with me, you know, come find me, and I would love to uh, debate you on that because I'm, I'm solid on that point. During the same time the Crusades were going on and masses were being executed in the name of Jesus uh, for you know, their refusal or their not being given the opportunity to convert, there was a group at work called the Franciscans who presented a different way. They presented a way of doing Christianity that was focused on the dignity of people and loving people the way Jesus loved people. That's ingenious. That runs directly counter to the Christian culture of the day. Because someone had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. That's how they got started. Someone had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and it opened them up to a new way of doing things that was totally different from the way everyone else was doing things at the time. And then we come to the Jesuits in the 16th century. And the Jesuits, under Ignatius of Loyola, developed a, a spirituality and a worldview that has deeply influenced my own. And one of my favorite Jesuits is St. Francis Xavier. And Francis Xavier was the first uh, missionary, the first Jesuit missionary to Japan. And he was deeply committed to the way of Jesus. 
deeply committed to the way of loving people and calling out the golden people. And so what happens is his entire approach was centered around finding the things that reflected the heart of God about Japanese culture and spirituality and using them as a jumping off point to present the gospel in a way that honored the people who were living there. That's ingenuity. That's ingenuity. That's a new approach. That's a new way of thinking about things. And so what we need today is ingenuity. How is the Holy Spirit inviting us to approach our lives from the perspective of seeking out, uh, seeking out God's activity and partnering with it instead of sitting around and loathing the things that don't appear godly enough around us? That's something that we've got to figure out here in Oxford because if I can be honest, sometimes uh, figuring out a new outreach or a new class or a new ministry thing really feels like trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. We need more ingenuity. Trying to fit a square peg in a round hole is not called ingenuity. That's called being left behind because the thing that you have was for yesterday and it doesn't work anymore. And so we've got to figure out what God's doing in us today that will work. That's Holy Spirit ingenuity. The fourth pillar of leadership that I want to talk to you about is what the Jesuits call heroism uh, or what we call here in the vineyard risk. Increased influence comes with taking action on heroic ambitions in the Holy Spirit. See, we're, we're real humble people as Christians. We don't like to talk about being ambitious. We don't like to talk about our goals and, and that kind of stuff. But this comes Heroism comes from having heroic ambitions in the Holy Spirit. When he sets us on things that feel impossible for us to accomplish on our own. Right? That's one of the things that we're focusing on in the Sockham Alumni Discipleship Program is making impossibility goals and chasing after the things that would be impossible without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Leaders rise and take action. People follow people because they take action. When, when you get the job done, when you're willing to do the dirty work, people follow leaders because they take action. How many of you have followed someone because in the midst of chaos or complacency, they acted? Right? That's exciting to us. When we see there's complacency around, there's chaos around, nobody knows what to do, and all of a sudden, somebody acts. And whether it's right or not, we're attracted to that thing as people, right? We're attracted to people of action. And so what we have to do is figure out, um, you know, how to, how to facilitate, how to create space around ourselves, leading others, because we are willing to do the hard work when no one's looking. Because we're willing to do the hard work when nobody wants to. That is heroic leadership. Heroism is often something that we've tried to disassociate ourselves in terms of leadership. We don't want to talk about that word heroic because we have this picture in our minds of heroic leadership uh, in the negative sense of like a leader who feels like they have to be the hero in every situation, right? That's not what I'm talking about. That's the thing that we need to avoid. This, this person, this hero leader, you know, is trying their hardest to do everything and save everyone and run every program and show up for everything and have it all done before lunch themselves, right? And that's not heroism, that's pride, and it's evil. Phil Strout, the National Director of Vineyard USA, one of my favorite teachers, he, he famously repeats over and over and over again, I can hear him saying it in my head right now, this Jesuit saying, keep one foot in the air and be ready to pivot. 
Keep one foot in the air and be ready to pivot. Because the reason he's saying that is Holy Spirit could take us a different direction at any given moment. And so if we get too set in our ways, if we get too set in one direction, and we refuse to innovate, and we refuse to step up and be heroic leaders and take action when other people won't take action and lead in the face of chaos, then we're going to lose that, that position. Heroism isn't doing everything yourself. It's a restless, countercultural instinct to keep challenging the status quo. Heroism is not doing everything yourself. It's a restless, countercultural instinct to keep challenging the status quo. That's the way we move forward. That's the way Holy Spirit has moved the church forward over time, right? When we, when we look at the way things are done and we say, I'm not satisfied with this. This is not working anymore. In the face of a changing world, in the face of a changing culture, this no longer works and we have to innovate. We have to innovate. That's what I'm talking about. It's redirecting the energy that would have us try to do everything ourselves and using it instead to have a heightened awareness of what God is doing around us to have a holy optimism toward the things that Jesus wants to do in our circle of influence. So heroism is about circling back to self-awareness and the whole thing restarts because we have to have the ability to squeeze every last bit of potential out of every opportunity that we encounter. In the vineyard, we would call that faith spelled R-I-S-K, right? That's what we're talking about every time we talk about that. We're saying that we have to have the awareness and the optimism to squeeze every bit of potential out of every opportunity we encounter. Think about it that way. That's why we do power evangelism. That's why we talk about praying for people on the streets and praying for people in the grocery store and because it's about turning the ordinary on its head in favor of something supernatural that God wants to do around us. And it's about being filled with anticipation for that thing to happen. And it can happen in our homes. It can happen in public. It can happen in the church meeting. It can happen on the internet. Seriously, it can happen all over the place. Chris Lowney in Heroic Leadership says it like this, the restless drive to look for something more in every opportunity and the confidence that one will find it is what defines heroism. The restless drive to look for something more in every opportunity and the confidence that one will find it. Heroism is bringing strong conviction and intensity of spirit multiplied across thousands of dynamic kingdom opportunities over a lifetime that results in dynamic kingdom impact. When we look at people, heroes of the faith, right? When we think about heroes of the faith, why are they heroes of the faith? They're heroes of the faith because they have had the presence of mind, they've had a strong conviction and an intensity of spirit multiplied across thousands of small encounters over the course of their entire lives. Hopefully it's not because they did one great thing once. Hopefully it's because the body of work over the course of their lives, stands up for itself and shows us what it looks like to bring intensity to every moment of every day by the Holy Spirit. So just to recap, the four pillars of influence are self-awareness, love, ingenuity, and heroism. Keep those things in mind. I believe that we see those principles evidenced in the life of Jesus as well as in the lives of the apostles and the lives of the apostles in this room that I look up to. 
you people embody this stuff. We've just got to remain aware of it, and we've got to stay in it. So where do we go from here? I want to close with some practical things, because that's a lot of ideas, and that's a lot of stuff for us to chew on. If your brain hurts, I've done my job. So I want to close with six practical steps that will allow you to take hold of your influence in these four areas. I genuinely believe that if we put these six things into practice, we will begin to take hold of a new level of influence regardless of where we are. Influence in our families, influence in, in our actions in public. Like I said, things, the way that we talk to people can shift the atmosphere in a place. Do you realize that? It's not even about like praying for the grocery store clerk. Sometimes it's just about how you talk to the grocery store clerk that will totally change the spiritual dynamic in a place in favor of, of Jesus and his kingdom, right? We have to be pursuing that kind of influence that, you know, there are people that I can think of when that person walks in the room, it's a different room. That's the kind of influence that we're intended to carry. It's not focused on our actions. It's focused on what's coming out of our inner life. So the first practical step to take hold of your influence is to recognize Write these things down. Recognize your own dignity and rich potential. Recognize your own dignity and rich potential. Because if your starting place for these things is, I'm no good, I'm a failure, I don't have any skills, I can't talk to people, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to me, I don't, you're toast. Recognize your own dignity and rich potential. So how are we going to do that? Meditate on Ephesians 2.10 until you believe it about yourself. Meditate on Ephesians 2.10 until you believe it about yourself. And if you don't know how to meditate, come find me. I'll help you. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Meditate on that until you believe it about yourself. The second, recognize weakness and attachments that water down the mission that Jesus has set you on. There are things, Ignatius would call them disordinate attachments, that water down our mission, that water down the effectiveness of our life. There are things that we're obsessed with, that we love, that get in the way of Jesus. They get in the way of us loving Jesus. If you love Fox News and you watch it more than you read your Bible, there's an issue. There's an issue. That's, a, that's what we would call a disordinate attachment. If you love Facebook and you scroll more than you read your Bible, that's a disordinate attachment. Seriously. Now, I'm not putting those things down, right? They have their place, okay? They have their place, but we need to put them in their place. Disordinate attachments. If you have a disordinate attachment to substance, alcohol, tobacco, food, these things are disordinate attachments that get in our way of hearing what Jesus is saying to us. So ask the Holy Spirit where you're missing it because he loves to convict you of your righteousness. It's his favorite thing to do. If you ask Holy Spirit, where am I missing it? What are my disordinate attachments? He'll show you. He'll circle them. The third thing, articulate the values that you stand for. We have to know what we're about as people to be able to go in a direction, right? When Jesus is on his way to the cross, 
when he's at peak self-awareness, he knows his values and he's very aware of his worldview. He understands what those things are. So find a list of values and vet them. They're all over the internet. They're all over different books. Find lists of values and, and look at them and ask God to highlight which of these things are for my life. Because you've got to know, you've got to have some, some pillars, some guideposts that are keeping you on track for the mission that Jesus has for you. I have three, and I'll share them with you if you're curious, and I can tell you how I put that into practice. I think about them every day. I don't always get there, but I think about them every day. The fourth thing, establish personal goals, right? Some of us have been disappointed by goal setting because, you know, we set goals that aren't measurable or we set goals that we could never attain and then, and then we don't get there. We don't know how to get there. We have got to establish personal goals. Work with a trusted mentor, a life coach, someone, anyone. Come find me. I'll help you. I would love to challenge you. Challenge yourself to find out where Jesus is taking you and pursue that thing. Because if we don't have direction, we're, we're done. We're done for. Where we're, we're vision lacks, the people perish. Right? Have you heard that one before? It's true. We've got to have vision. We've got to have a direction. The fifth point, form a point of view on the world. This is big. That you're always willing to change when it doesn't align with that of Jesus. How will you relate to others? This has to do with our relationships. It has to do with a lot of these things. But how are you going to relate to others? What is your point of view on the world? How many School of Kingdom Ministry students do we have in here? How important is worldview and knowing your worldview, understanding what it is and, and pursuing the worldview of Jesus? We've got to know. Be aware of your worldview. Write it down. What do you think it is? Is it entirely humanistic and totally out of touch with anything spiritual? Maybe. Is it entirely in the fourth dimension and, and just completely useless in your everyday life? Because that's a thing too. Right? Be aware. What is your worldview? How, what's the lens? How are you processing? What's going on? The sixth thing, see the wisdom and value in the examine and commit yourself to it. Have you ever heard the word examine? See the, the wisdom and value in the examine. This is a new spiritual discipline, a new practice that I'm maybe going to introduce to some of you for the first time. The examine. What is the examine? It's a practice of, of spiritual awareness that allows ourselves to basically acknowledge the presence of the Holy Spirit, acknowledge the presence of Jesus, and invite him in to come and, and reflect on our life, on our day, and show us where we missed it, basically, and process with him. And so what I try to do, my, my practice, there's a lot of different ways that people do this. My practice basically contains two points. I like to try to start every day by acknowledging the Holy Spirit and asking him what he wants to do in me today. That doesn't take long. That does not take long. You can do that in two minutes. You can do it in the car on the way to work. You can do it while you make your coffee. That's how I usually do it. Just acknowledge the presence of the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do inside of me today? What are you inviting me into? And I guarantee that if you do that over and over and over again, over time, you'll get something. And then the second point, the second thing that I do is review the day in your mind in the evening hours. And I ask myself, how have I treated the image of God in people today? And did I spend my day aware of the thing that the Spirit of Jesus is doing inside of me? And that practice for me 
has, has greatly accelerated the way that I have entered into these four pillars of leadership of self-awareness, love, ingenuity, and heroism because Holy Spirit's always inviting us into those things. And so if we take the time to ask him, what are you doing? What are you saying to me? What are you working in me? I guarantee he's got some things that he wants to work on you with. He always does for me. There's always going to be something there. So see, that's the sixth point. See the wisdom and value in the examine and commit yourself to it. For the rest of your life, engage with these things over and over and over and over again. And I guarantee that the product of that is going to be a Christ-like servant leadership. I guarantee that the product of that is going to be a Christ-like servant leadership in your family, in your business, in your apartment complex, wherever you are. I really feel like, you know, in this Kingdom Living series, this is a point that a lot of people can look over if we look at it with our, with our natural lenses on. If we say, well, you know, I mean, I don't lead a business, I don't lead a ministry, you know, maybe, maybe your kids are grown, maybe you, you, know, you just don't see yourself as a leader. We've got to break out of that. We've got to break out of that because leadership and influence begins with leading yourself. So I'm going to pray and then the worship team can come back up and I just start that process today. Start that process while we worship. Holy Spirit, what are the disordinate attachments? What are the things that you want to cultivate inside of me that I'm not paying attention to right now? So, Jesus, we just invite more of your presence here. And we just, we ask for your wisdom and we ask for your power to come on everyone in this room uh, just for empowerment to press into the leadership and influence that you are storing up for us, that you, that you long to desire to, long and desire to release to us for us to move in. God, I ask that you would start to even give people uh, visions and pictures during worship of what their influence might look like, perfected in you. Show them who they're leading. Make us aware, God. Make us aware of these things as we go through the, the mundane, everyday things that, that we do. God, show us what, what it is to lead ourselves and lead others. We just ask for more of your presence, more of your transformative presence. In Jesus' name, amen.